in a corner of the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia, there hangs an old painting, about five foot tall by four foot wide. It's huge, and it's full of dark browns and blacks and deep reds. It's a picture of a man in tattered clothes with worn out shoes, and he's down on his knees, facing away from the viewer, uh, burying his face in the embrace of his aging father. And the kneeling man's skin is dirty and gray and pockmarked. And his head is bald. It almost looks like his hair has been ripped out of his scalp. Uh, And he's buried his head in his father's robe, so we can't see his whole face. But what we do see from the side of his face is that his eyes are closed and his cheeks are hollow. And he looks worn out and hungry. You can tell that this man has suffered immensely. Maybe you've seen this painting before. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And it's one of the last that Rembrandt, uh, the great old Dutch master, ever painted. And on the surface, the man in the painting is the younger brother from Jesus' famous parable in Luke 15. But on a deeper level, I actually wonder if it's a self-portrait by Rembrandt himself. See, Rembrandt suffered too. Uh, He was famous in his lifetime, actually. He wasn't like Van Gogh, who nobody ever bought his works. He was famous. Uh, Made a lot of money, but was addicted to his own riches. He always had to have the newest trinket, the latest thing. Maybe you and I can relate. And that sent him into considerable financial debt, and he was often on the brink of financial ruin. He suffered on account of his own failings in this respect. But he also suffered because of things outside of his control. Uh, Out of his first three children, all three died within two months of their birth. And when his fourth and only surviving child was born, his wife died of tuberculosis within a year afterward. The man knew suffering. So I think that when Rembrandt painted this painting toward the end of his life, he painted the sorrow of his own sins and then also the sorrow over his own losses into that prodigal son. We look at that tattered man in the robes, and that is, that's the prodigal son, but that's Rembrandt. And that's why I at least find it so relatable. When I look at that painting, and I think on his own sufferings, uh, it seems like there's a question implicit in it. Um, I know, God, that you can forgive the sins, like you promised that, but can you, can you fix this? Can you restore the losses? The Bible clearly teaches that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. Uh, but it also teaches that we all suffer loss. That's Romans 8.18. We find that all over the pages of Scripture. This is what life is in a fallen, broken world. You will suffer loss. Um, No one gets through life without experiencing tangible diminishment in some way or another. Whether it's a missed opportunity, or a broken relationship, or a humiliation over a moral failing. Maybe it's a failing body. Maybe it's losing a loved one. Life in this broken world takes a chunk out of you. Amen? Uh, 
part of the reason that we're studying Joel right now is that uh, in Joel, we hear God respond to that question. God, can you restore that? Can you restore that? Even this. Um, as you think of that broken, tattered man in Rembrandt's portrait, can you get me a microphone? Thanks. Um, as we think of that man, uh, I think that's a pretty good image to describe the people of Israel as we find them in Joel chapter 2. Israel has been beaten down by a plague of locusts, and now the land is desolate. The grain is gone, so there's no bread. The grapes are gone, so there's no wine. The olives are gone, so there's no oil. The locusts have even stripped the bark off of the trees. Right? It's just absolute obliteration of an entire economy, an entire religious system. Come on, guys, we've been dwelling on this for the last month, right? We know all about it. Oh, yeah. We test these things all the time during the week, believe it or not, and without fail, they work perfectly all week long. Something about Sunday morning, isn't there? Thank you, Alex. Israel is in the depths of catastrophe, and as Alex uh, shared last week, what does Joel do? How did he respond to that? He called everybody together, right? If we found out the world was ending in two days, where would we be? I sure hope we would all be right here, right? Um, we'd be doing our thing. Alex would be fixing electrical wires. I would, and microphones. Uh, I don't know what I would be doing. I'd be with you guys, though. Joel got everyone, youngest to oldest, together. He consecrated the people, which, if, if you remember, means that he set them apart for a special purpose, and then they cried out to God. This is chapter 2, verse 15 of Joel. They said, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach. He promised to take care of us. Don't leave us. And in our passage this morning, starting in verse 18, we see the Lord's response. This is the fun part to preach. We get to see God's heart, and we're going to see his power. So turn with me to Joel chapter 2, verse 18. Joel 2, 18. You should have black Bibles right in front of you in the pews there. First, God's heart. What is his heart when we turn to him? Verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Two things, jealousy for the land, pity for the people. And actually, jealousy isn't really the best word. That has a lot of negative connotations uh, in our society. When I think of jealous, I think of a preschooler at his brother's birthday party, right? Not speaking from experience or anything like that. Um, they, I want it. It's all self-centered. Uh, but that's not really what's going on here. It's more the idea of, okay, if you, if you love your spouse and you see your spouse going down a road that is not good for them, Maybe uh, it's a road of infidelity or addiction or something like that. You will be jealous for them and you, to pull them out of that, not just because you're selfishly wanting them, but because you, uh, you love them for their own good, right? Um, I love the translation that Old Testament scholar Leslie Allen gives it. The Lord showed passionate concern. 
passionate concern. God is not jealous like a petulant child. He's passionately concerned like a faithful spouse. And for his people, he has pity. This is a Hebrew word that we see first in Exodus chapter 2. This is where Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby Moses floating down the river in a little basket made of pitch and reeds. And, uh, quote, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying, and she took pity on him. That's the sentiment behind the word. Uh, my one-and-a-half-year-old, Asa, often, he's just at that age, right? And he often trips and just smacks his face on the floor. The poor guy. Um, and what do you think my wife, Jenna, does in those moments? Sits back on his couch. Idiot. No, she doesn't do that. She goes up and she, she's immediately, her heart is filled with pity. I think it's like, uh, it's automatic. I really think she couldn't not do this. She's incapable of not having pity. Uh, it's this visceral response and she runs over, picks him up and there's kisses and cuddles and there's usually a snack um, or a knack if, as it's called in my household. Um, but that's what Joel is saying. The Lord is passionate concern passionately concerned for his promised land like a faithful spouse, and he has pity on his people like a good mom. That is God's heart. He has a heart to restore. When you turn to God, he's not standing over you with arms crossed, going, idiot, get it together. A lot of us have self-talk that leads us into that spiral. That's the word that, those are the words that we say to ourselves in our own consciousness. That is not God's voice. That is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is passionately concerned for you. The Holy Spirit has pity towards sinners and turns toward them to restore. And not only does he have a heart to restore, he has the power to restore. Uh, this is verses 19 through 24. Uh, they're brimming with this rich poetic imagery. And I wish I had time to unpack it verse by verse. But um, I've learned that at Sermon Minute 31, um, people in the back, usually starting with Adam and Lou, start throwing rotten fruit. So um, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to give you my Spark Notes summary here. All right? Here we go. Uh, first, the passage. Verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. That's his heart. The Lord answered and said to his people, here's his power, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner, that's the, referring to the locust, far from you. I will drive him into a parched and desolate land, the southern desert, his vanguard or front guard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise. This is a noted ancient phenomenon that when locusts were drowned in the sea, their carcasses washed up on the beach and it stank. Um, for he has done great, meaning terrible things. Verse 21. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. That's the fall rain. 
Uh, he has poured down on you abundant rain. The early and latter rain, the latter rain is the spring rain, uh, have come down as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I see three high points happening here. One, the locusts are driven away and drowned in the sea, so your problem is no longer with you. Two, God sends rain. God sends rain. Rain was the lifeblood of the ancient world, especially in a rather arid climate. And then three, that issues forth in abundance. The land has green pastures for the livestock. There is fruit on the trees to throw at the preacher. The grain harvest is full, and the vats overflow with wine and oil. There isn't just enough. There is more than enough. And uh, we're supposed to hear Eden's tune here, as Alex was saying. It's almost like Eden is springing up in the middle of devastation. That is restoration. That's my personal summary. But in verse 25, we find the Lord's summary. And surprise, surprise, his is better than mine. Verse 25. This is God's promise. And I wonder if you can hear this promise for you this morning. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you rather strange language, hopper, destroyer, cutter. But if you remember back to chapter 1, verse 4, devastation came in a four-wave locust invasion, right? We had the swarming locust, the hopping locust, the destroying locust, and the cutting locust. These are all waves uh, of devastating locust plagues that came through and destroyed everything. But Joel says that the loss from every single one of these waves, every last detail of it, will be completely restored. That word restore literally means pay back. It's a legal term for compensation of damages. So the Lord is promising to Israel that he will personally repay them for the losses that they suffered on account of their own sins. Um, For the record, God doesn't owe this to them. If you light your house on fire, the the insurance company is not going to pay for that. Uh, trust me, we've considered it with the sanctuary here, and we've realized it's just not going to happen. That's in the category of, to use technical terms, that was stupid, your fault, your problem. But God restores because his heart is full of passionate concern and pity. And this is actually something of a pattern throughout the Old Testament. God is in the business of restoration. We see it from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. We see it in Exodus, where God restores Israel and gives them a promised land after 430 years of slavery. We see it in Job, when God restores Job's losses twofold. We see it in the exile, when God restores his people to their homeland after 70 years in Babylon. And then in the ultimate example, we see it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, we see that God can restore even out of death. Here's the crucial point. This is like, this is the crucial point right here. Uh, These are not just isolated incidents. 
These are all tied into one thing. Uh, if you're standing at a particular point in the Fish Lake Basin of Utah's Rocky Mountains, you might look up and you'll see this 80-foot tall tree with this beautiful white bark and golden leaves this time of year. And then you might look uh, to your right and then you'll see another 80-foot tall tree with beautiful white bark and golden leaves. And then to your left and you'll see another one. And you might think, what a coincidence to have three nearly identical trees right next together, next to each other. What a coincidence to have these three isolated trees that look like one another. And then you keep looking, and then you'll see that the whole forest is full of these 80-foot tall, beautiful trees. They're called aspens. That's not technically correct. It is called an aspen. It's not trees. It is tree. Uh, they look identical because they are identical, genetically identical. Uh, it's an underground web of roots uh, weighing a single organism, weighing over 13 million pounds under the surface, pushing up over 40,000 of these 80-foot tall buds. <laughs> they're so, compared to the actual organism, they're so such small little things that they're called buds. The trees themselves, you look at it, you're like, that's an impressive tree. But really, that's just a symptom. That's an outcropping of this much, much bigger thing that's just pushing its way through the earth and nothing can stop it. And so it is with these glimpses of restoration throughout the Old Testament. We aren't studying this ancient text because it's a nice story with a clear moral. It isn't a nice story. It doesn't have a clear, easy moral. If anything, it's confusing and difficult. But we're studying this because this is one little upshoot of this massive movement of restoration that God is bringing about. Um, and if these are the upshoots, then the resurrection of Jesus is the trunk. It's the whole thing. So we can read this passage from Joel... I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. And you can say, that's for me. He's going to restore my life too. And he's going to restore your life. Timothy Keller writes that the resurrection isn't just a consolation for like the life that you never had. It's not like a little like consolation prize at the end but rather it is a restoration of the life that you always wanted. This means that every horrible thing that has ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. So the resurrection says that through Christ, everything can and everything will be restored. This has immense and profound consequences for the way that we view our own lives. Are you ruined by addiction? You will have millions of ages of years, not of white-knuckled sobriety, of hanging on like maybe it is here, but of freedom and joy beyond your wildest dreams. Are you plagued with guilt, maybe over something that you did long ago that you can't undo? Maybe something that you've buried 
you will have a conscience so clean, it will be better than if you had never erred in the first place. That's what the gospel says. That's how clean God is able to make a sinner. Uh, are, you, are you divorced? Have you been abandoned? Have you never married and always wanted to? Are you in a marriage where you feel lonely and isolated, like your spouse doesn't get you? You have a fellowship with Christ coming so intimate and so enthralling that when you look back, you'll be like, oh, I didn't realize it, but I was married the whole time. C.S. Lewis said uh, that uh, heaven, once attained, works backwards and transforms even our agonies into glories. Are you grieving? You have a happy homecoming to look forward to. And here's the thing. This is the promise of the resurrection. That whatever you remember of that person, you have not yet experienced the best of that relationship. You've known something diminished by sin and tainted on this earth. Even the best, most glorious memories you have with your loved ones. The resurrection says... Uh, you've not encountered each other in glory before the presence of Christ. You've not experienced the best of it, not even by half. You ain't seen nothing yet. We really cannot fathom the immensity of the restoration that God is working in Jesus Christ. We look around and we, get ho we feel hopeless because we see how scarred up our earth is, how scarred up our relations are, relationships are, how scarred up our life is. Um, but, but we don't even have a clue of what the power of God is, what he is able to do, and what he is doing. I'm not saying this because I'm hopeful. I'm saying this because he's promised. He said, this is what I'm doing. It's in, it's in here. Resurrection changes everything. He will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. That's my hope. And that's hope for you, for prodigals like us. Amen.